So, we've been practicing together now for a day or so. And I'd like to offer a few reflections in relationship to what we're engaged in, what's here with us. And in a certain way, the, the question that's here for our life, perhaps we could say, is what really matters? What's important? Quite some years ago now, I was visiting a friend and uh, friend was, when I arrived, he said he's very excited. He said he had something to show me. And I was interested because he doesn't get excited that easily. And he took me and he said, look, it's a box of chocolates. And I thought, that's, you know, that's exciting in one sense. But I was surprised how excited he was about a box of chocolates. Um, and he said, look, they've got instructions. And uh, it's probably not fair that I'm talking to you about chocolates when you're on retreat and you probably don't have a supply of them, but this is the story. And instructions for eating chocolates. Like, who would think they would need instructions for eating chocolates? We know what to do with them, don't we? But these were remarkable. It said, <coughs> instructions. This box of handcrafted Belgian praline chocolates have been confected for your exquisite enjoyment. Please follow the instructions. Turn off the television. Put away your newspapers and your magazines. Sit down somewhere comfortable. Take a moment to open the box. Gaze upon the shapes and the forms. And select one. Place it upon your tongue. Don't chew it. Wait a few moments until the warmth of your mouth begins to melt the chocolate. And then if you wish, begin chewing. Take in the flavor, the texture, the aroma. Don't swallow too quickly. Wait until the molten chocolate begins to trickle down your throat. And if you wish, then, take another. Now, my friend and I, it was like, wow, meditation instructions for eating chocolate. Which is why he was excited. But we'd actually followed them. And the interesting thing, my friend said after we'd eaten one each, he said, you know, usually one doesn't really taste the chocolate. It's like, great, chocolate's yum. But we're talking, or we're saying, wow, these are great chocolates. But actually, to take them in that fully? And this, perhaps, is kind of like our life. So much of the time and so easily, we're offered experience, we could say. Maybe not always a box of Belgian praline chocolates. But we're offered experience, and yet we, we somehow engage with it or relate to it in a way that doesn't allow us to fully receive what it has to offer us. So when we ask the question, what really matters, what's important? There's many ways we could answer that question, but one way is, 
what's right here? What's right now? This matters. This is important. And in the way we're practicing, we are effectively expressing and embodying that understanding by giving care and attention to our momentary, moment-by-moment experience. We're not saying it's really important, we all agree. It's we're expressing that by caring for it, attending to it. And as we do this, of course, what we see often, and in a way almost inevitably and unstoppably, is we see how much of the time in a given period of meditation, but equally we see how much of the time in our lives we live in a way that's disconnected, that's lost, that's not actually intimate with our immediate experience. The great teacher and reformer of Buddhist culture in Thailand in the 20th century, Ajahn, which means teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, he was once asked, how would you describe the world? And he responded in just three words. He said, lost in thought. And so interesting. This is the world. Lost in thought. And so perhaps in terms of what matters, it's also knowing where we are. What is it to be lost or not lost in our life? There's a story of a, of a businessman who um, was had to drive out from the big city where he generally worked and he was looking for um, an important meeting in a hall that he had to find out in the country and driving through the narrow lanes. He was uh, following his sat-nav but it didn't seem to be bringing him to where he needed to go and after a while he realised actually he was lost and the, the route wasn't working so he stopped. And he, he called out to a farmer he saw working in the field and said, hey, can you tell me what... What's the best way to get to Orchard Hall? And the farmer said, mm, sorry, I haven't heard of Orchard Hall. I don't know where that is. He said, okay, can you, can you tell me what the name of this road is that I'm on? And the farmer said, actually, I'm sorry, I don't know the name of the road. And the businessman looked at him, he said, you don't know very much at all, do you? The farmer smiled, he looked back and said, that might be true, but then I'm not lost. And the story for me, it expresses this thing, this way we often relate. When we don't quite know where we are or where to, how to get where we're going, we tend to start to blame something or someone for that condition. And it's actually not so helpful. We need to learn to take responsibility for our situation. But if we blame someone, ourselves or another, for it, that kind of gets in the way of addressing the actuality that maybe I need some help or maybe I just need to acknowledge that I don't know where I am. There's a sort of a, a, a maxim or a, a sort of a, a wisdom saying from the Stoic tradition which was one of the, uh, the ancient Greek sort of wisdom philosophy traditions <coughs> which goes like this. It says, the unlearned blame others. Those who are learning blame themselves. Those who have learned blame no one. And I think it's really interesting. Before we start to engage in spiritual practice, we can see all the problems with the world and other people and 
Maybe we acknowledge that we might contribute a little bit to it, but mostly it looks like it's out there. There's the problem, I can see it. It's all over the newspapers or all over the social media feeds these days, I guess. I say that with some degree of confusion because I don't have one of those, but I know that that's where people get their news from mostly. Um, and then if we start to practice, we start to see, oh, wow, look what goes on in here. Wow, it's me. I'm the problem. I, I'm at fault for the chaos and misery and suffering and struggle and confusion of my life or in this world because I'm not solving it or fixing it. We tend to take an undue and extreme level of self-responsibility that results in a kind of blaming of ourselves. When we practice, what we start to see is that all of what is possible, all of what is happening and all of what is possible arises out of conditions of which we are not in charge but which we can have an impact on and influence. So paying attention isn't something we can just do as a continuous act of choice. But as we seek to, as we cultivate, as we develop it, we see it becomes more possible. It doesn't mean we don't get distracted or lost, but we start to notice it more quickly or perhaps more often. Or perhaps simply we notice it more kindly because we've seen that judging ourselves for being lost really doesn't help. And it really doesn't. And we start to become interested in what are we lost in so much of the time? Because although we could say, yes, lost in thought, as Buddha Dasa did, what's the nature of the thinking we become lost in? And mostly if we reflect, if we look, we see that the kind of thinking that we get lost in is generally driven by something we could call fear or something we could call craving. A sense of wanting to get away from or get rid of and a sense of wanting to get hold of or keep hold of something, someone, some situation. And we spend our time in the past and the future because we're trying to figure out how in the past we got those things that we want to get more of or keep. So we can get more of them and keep them. And we're trying to figure out how it was that it happened, the things we want to avoid came to happen. So we can avoid them or bring them to an end. I mean, that's not all of what goes on in our thinking, but that simple analysis covers a large amount of it, I suggest. And you can check that out for yourself. We so much are caught up in this process without realizing it. And it's so powerful. I once had the experience on retreat where while I was practicing, as we've all been practicing today, some few days into the retreat it was, the staff served a vegetarian lasagna. Now, they didn't know what my relationship to lasagna is, but I really like it. And they'd served this lasagna. And then they'd put this little sign that said, moderate portions, please. And it's like, there am I. I wasn't the very first person in the queue, but you know, trying to look like I wasn't quite being at the front of the queue, but I was. And it was there, and there's moderate portion. Okay, so what's the largest portion I can take that's moderate? Okay, manage that. And then I sit down, this is vegetarian. It's I mean, food is wonderful at Guy House, um, and this was no exception. At least I find the food very tasty. And this lasagna was not just tasty, but it was like something in me was going, oh, this is what I want. 
And yet as I started to eat it, this thought came, will there be enough for seconds? I was suddenly worried because moderate portions, and I'd had a pretty big moderate portion. There's only so much lasagna, all these hungry retreatants. So I noticed, and I sort of noticed, and I sort of was caught in this, will there be enough? So I started shoveling this lasagna in. And you know, that's how I ate the lasagna, worried about whether there'd be a second helping for me. I wasn't worried if someone else would get one, for me. And by the time I got to the end of that not-so-moderate portion, I was so full, I didn't want any more. And I hadn't enjoyed it. Not a single mouthful did I actually enjoy. I was so worried about keeping it, about getting some more. And this isn't a story I've made up to illustrate a point. This actually happened. And you might recognize something of that. Or maybe not. But for me, that, that sense of noticing how much pressure we so often find ourselves under to get more of or less of, to keep or to get rid of, whatever it is that's going on that we like or we don't like. And funnily enough, there's almost always something that we like or we don't like. And if there isn't, of course, we get bored and we don't like that. So there we are. It's happening. Have you noticed anything like that? Does it resonate or do you recognize that in your own experience? I see a few nodding heads. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of important to hold it with some kindness and even humor. Not laughing at oneself, but with, look at this human system and how much this one, you know, he wanted lasagna. So much that he couldn't even enjoy it when he had it. Interesting, huh? And on a retreat, we might notice that the same thing plays out with our meditation. It's like we're under pressure to get somewhere else to that profound meditative awakened heart of the title, you know, whatever that's going to look like or feel like, but it, it must be good. It's in the title. Now, they don't put lasagna in the title of retreats. Maybe more people would come on them if we did, but um, there's plenty of people come, so that doesn't seem to be an issue. But it's like the sense of something more, something else. And if we just... Let it run. We don't notice it because we're in it, going with it. It's only when we stop and we feel and sense that pull and how it pulls us and it really literally pulls us into the next moment, into the next situation. And it's happening automatically unless we take time to notice, unless we create a frame that stops us so easily just following it. And that's part of what the structure of the retreat is. It stops us from so easily just following those momentums that means we have to notice them. It doesn't take them away, but it means we have to notice them. And if we actually stop and notice it, what we'll often start to recognize at some level is there's a sense that something's lacking or missing or not okay or not right with my experience, with my world, or with myself and that I've got to do something about that which involves fixing, changing, moving, shifting whatever's going on into whatever it is quote supposed to be that I don't necessarily even know but I just know it's not supposed to be this and then all our experience becomes something that we're looking at to see, is this what's going to get me there? Wherever there is. 
We've been to a lot of places we could call there in our life. And strangely, it's often the case that none of them seem to be the place we were looking for. Even if we look, it looked like they were before we got there. Have you ever noticed that? It looks like that's going to be the thing and then we get there and it's like, mm, I'm not sure this is it. Somewhere else, something else. Or to become someone else. That great spiritual project of, in a way, internalized materialism. And it's exhausting. There's no rest in it. We come on a retreat, so many of us wanting some space, some peace. And then as soon as there's actually space and nothing demanded of us, we create an agenda for ourselves of what has to be done, where we have to get to. It sounds like we've even been told to do that in the instructions. And no matter how one tries to reorganise saying the instructions, I've tried it, I tell you, to say, we're not trying to get somewhere else, and so, oh, that's where I have to get to now. Okay, that place where you're not trying to get to somewhere else, because right now I'm trying to get to somewhere else, so I've got to stop being there. Because we somehow seem to be so strongly compelled or oriented towards this. <clears throat> and we see, as someone related in the group, you know, we're sort of wanting the next thing. Sitting, we're thinking, oh, the walking. Walking, oh, the sitting. Sitting, oh, maybe the standing. And it's like, but at some point we realise, as the, as the retreatant said, actually, they're not that different, really. <laughs> Why am I wanting the next thing when it's not that different than the thing I've got? Great question. So what is important? What we might really value in this situation? And we can talk about peace, of happiness, of well-being, of freedom, of, of wisdom, of compassion, of loving kindness. There are so many things. And in a broad sense, we can kind of gather them together in two kinds of primary areas, at least for, maybe that's too simple, but what we could say there are two primary areas that we can talk about. One is in the realm of understanding, and one is in the realm of caring, we could say, of how to care for, how. And um, we're born, it seems to me, in this world with a sense of caring for whoever and whatever we are close to, feel connected to, what we value, what we love. It could vary for each of us what that looks like, but the capacity we have, this natural caring for, wishing to be close to, to be connected with, to nourish or to uplift or to bring about the welfare and the well-being of, whether it be myself or my family or my community or my my land or my country or my e ecology, all these different kinds of things. We, we have this quite naturally, it seems to me. But we don't actually necessarily have the wisdom, the understanding that allows us to effectively engage in bringing that about. So much of our engagement endeavouring to bring about that well-being or to deepen that connection or to sustain that sort of well-being doesn't necessarily produce that outcome. That whole trying to get and get rid of is premised generally on the unspoken idea that if I can get 
this or get rid of that or keep hold of this or make sure that doesn't ever come again, then I'll be happy, I'll be peaceful, I'll be well, I'll be okay, I'll be whatever it is I'm trying to be. And so then the experiences become really important to us because we've got to do something with them in order to arrive where we believe or imagine we're trying to arrive. And our society values and supports and encourages this process of getting and having and producing and consuming more and more. The economy and the society is founded on the principle that the more, if you do more of that, it'll eventually fulfill and satisfy you. I don't think it's true, personally. I don't know, maybe your experience is different than mine. I don't think it's true. In fact, it's remarkably destructive. There's a huge cost to living in that way, personally and in our world. And it leads to some really strange perspectives. I remember being kind of struck and saddened and horrified and at the same time, gosh, yeah. At some, it, was a, it was a few years ago. There was a big concern in the news, a number of articles across the media saying, gosh, petrol consumption has fallen. That's bad for the economy. I thought, wow, okay, maybe it's bad for the economy, but consuming less fossil fuels in the current world situation has got to be a good thing. But apparently it's bad for the economy. So we might be quite well aware of the limitations of that view and approach. And there are further and deeper elements to that, the way we can contemplate that. <coughs> what we see is that this process of pursuing <coughs> seeking to get hold of or keep hold of and avoiding, trying to get rid of or prevent the arising of experience requires us to control the flow of experience. And, you know, the thing that probably feels the closest to many of us is our mind. Has anyone managed to control their mind so far today? Stop it doing anything they didn't want it to do? Let alone our body, you know. Okay, can you be comfortable now? Would you be awake now? Would you not need to go to the bathroom now? Does it listen? No. We can't control the things that are closest to us. We certainly don't control the weather. Other people? Have you tr tried to control one other person even? You know, painful, isn't it? And unsuccessful. Experience is not in our control. We can influence it. If I feel a bit hot, I can take my jumper off, my fleece. If I feel a bit cold, I can put a blanket on. So it makes some difference. We can do something. But in some conditions, I can put on all my clothes and I'll still be cold. Take them all off. I won't do it here. And then I'll still be hot. And the meditation hall is probably not going to be that warm. But I always come in here before the talk thinking, I need to make sure I've got the right number of clothes on so I'm within one adjustment. Because I don't want to have to take off two layers. It'll be just too messy and complicated with a microphone on. And every time it's different in here as to how hot it is. 
But anyway, zippable fleece jackets are really good for that particular function. So that's me endeavouring to control, but knowing I might get it wrong. I might come in here and I haven't got enough on, or even if I unzip this, I could still be too hot. That's our life, isn't it? In microcosm. And so we find ourselves looking here for something to fulfill us sometimes. Now there's not a lot of entertainment, there's not a lot going on in the retreat. You know, in the first day I'll, I'll actually have more to say during the sittings and at various points, just to give reminders and provide a little bit of something to sort of engage with and there won't be more of that tomorrow. Hopefully there'll be a bit less. And already it might feel like there wasn't very much. Hmm. Maybe it felt like there was quite a lot. I don't know. But do you notice how we start looking for something? I notice that the only time I ever read the label on a tea bag is when I'm on retreat. Plenty of labels on tea bags elsewhere in my life, but only when I'm on retreat do I actually look at it carefully. Or we go and find ourselves by the notice board, just checking the schedule, see if it's changed for later in the day. It might change a little bit tomorrow, won't be very much, but it's like that sense of looking for something. I was checking, I thought someone might have their hand up to want to ask something, but I think they're doing a practice so that's fine um, there's a great story of Nasruddin the, uh, the Sufi teaching figure the sort of wise man and a fool at the same time who one might suspect his foolishness as a way of trying to wake us up to our own and one day Mullah Nasruddin was sitting on the corner of the village square on market day and he had a large pile of red hot chilies in front of him and people were coming up to him and looking at him because he was eating these red hot chilies and his eyes were red, his nose was streaming, his face was bloodshot. He didn't look like he was enjoying himself. And as they, they came up and, and bowed, you know, Mullah, Mullah, very respectfully, what are you doing? And then sort of looks up, he says, I'm eating these chilies. He picks up another one and bites into it and his whole body shudders. And the, the villagers say, Mullah, Mullah, we can see you're eating the chilies. Why are you eating the chilies? Nazarin smiles and he says, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. If all the experiences we've had now, up until this point in our life, have not been able to be organised into a way that accords with how we'd like them to be. That we are able to be in control of them. And that brings to an end the process of looking for the perfect conditions or circumstances. Then it's really not likely that the ones coming after this moment are going to be able to be done, have that done with them or to them. There might be, who knows? Nazareth may find the sweet chilli, but the odds are not good, are they, in that situation? So we're asked to turn here as we 
as we engage in this practice that in some ways is quite simple and yet by simple we need to be clear there's no way that this is easy what we're being asked to do simple is not easy it's just simple in fact sometimes because it's simple it's harder in a certain way or more challenging and we come with the aspiration for our lives or whatever it is we might wish for that we feel is important that we do have a natural and appropriate sense of possibility in regard to and understanding what I've been pointing to just now or seeking, endeavouring to point to just now isn't to kind of abandon some sense of aspiration for our lives and say oh there's nothing I can do about it it's going to be you know, difficult, complicated, not on my control, I might as well just, um, you know, give up. It's, that's really not the response suggested here. But to see what may be possible for us, to have a spirit of exploration, we have to allow ourselves to take this as a learning journey. There's this very strange idea that's said to us when we get somewhere to the far end of our teenagers or early teens, said, you've grown up now. Our body might have come to the end of its vertical growing at least. It hasn't come to the end of other kinds of growing. Mine's been doing it quite a bit in recent years. Um, though I'm not getting taller. But growing up? What is that? Now you're grown up. No. That's something that we say that suggests we're supposed to know now all the things you need to know. You're not a kid learning anymore. And it's so unhelpful because it suggests then that we're a suitable topic for being judged or perhaps even ridiculed if we make mistakes. How scary and difficult it is to do something that we might fail at and make a mistake at or make a mistake at. Isn't that something for most of us? And here it's so important you give yourself permission to learn which means to learn something new by definition. You don't know how to do it. You're going to make mistakes and that's okay. They're not mistakes. It's how it works. There's a great story of a, a Zen student who after many years of dedicated practice is granted an opportunity to visit the master. And so he goes in and bows three times and he knows he will only be able to ask one or two brief questions and the master is fierce and she is sitting there in meditation posture she is not smiling and he comes up and he says master can you tell me what is the most important thing and the master looks at him and she says discernment Wisdom. Wise judgment. He says, oh, thank you, thank you, Master. Yes, thank you. Uh, Master, how do you cultivate discernment, wisdom, wise judgment? Master looks at him. Through experience. Oh, yes, thank you, of course, of course. I'm very scared now because he already had two questions. Master, how do you get experience? <clears throat> Bad judgment. Lack of wisdom. That's how it happens, isn't it? What we don't yet understand, we 
act in ways that we find problematic and difficult. And that asks us to say, oh, this is something I can learn from. What if everything that we have endeavoured that didn't quite work out as we wished, whether meditation or otherwise, was something that was actually offering us an opportunity? Not a mark of a failure or a failing in ourselves. As with children who play, knowing that if you get it wrong, you can try again. This is a spirit we could, I think, really usefully bring to this practice and to this journey. To give ourselves permission to explore, to remove the word should from one's languaging of what is possible. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't use that word, obviously, because that wouldn't get us anywhere, would it? But just notice how quickly we move from a sense of what could be to what should be. And can you feel the difference? Oh, it could be that I could be mindful for a period of time in the meditation. Yeah, it, it could be. It's certainly possible for each and every one of us here. But as soon as I should be mindful for 20 minutes or two breaths, suddenly it's a very different thing going on. Because as soon as it's, I should be, it's, and if I was then, da-da-da-da-da, I'd have got somewhere. So, amidst the challenges of this practice and of the day, in whatever way they may have come to you, and it may not have been everyone's experience, as I've spoken or described, but it's really important to, keep returning to the sense of aspiration of, of what it is that moves you or calls you or asks you in, in your heart and your life to say, what's possible here for me? What might be more than what I've known so far? What might be less bound or limited or constrained than what has so far been known? As an open question, not as a how it must be. And to really honour, of course, the moments of our lives, the good things, the kindnesses, the aspirations, the, the good intentions that we hold. They are powerful. They don't manifest just instantly in outcomes necessarily. But they're nonetheless essential. That sense of, as a human being, wishing to grow more fully into what is possible for us. Absolutely imperative that we allow ourselves to feel and sense and touch that, or the wish to find some way to handle or to heal the suffering, the difficulty, the struggles of our lives or our world. Of course, so important. These that move us to engage in, in spiritual practice. And then we start to engage with the, the meditative process and this working with our attention. One of the you know, profound understandings the Buddha offered in his teaching was that what we give attention to and how we attend to it shapes our world, shapes our life, shapes our very mind. What we give attention to and how we give attention to it. And what we're practicing and developing our capacity is to choose or direct our attention in ways that develop 
what is wholesome within that process. To be present is to, to be mindful, to be conscious, to be awake, is to be present in the moment where we can start to see where our attention is going and we can see how it is shaping our experience. And then we can start to make choices about that. We can't always act enact those choices, but we can begin to see where the spaces that we can respond maybe differently. And one of the things is just to the very mind itself. The, the sense so many people come and associate with meditation of peace, of calm, of wanting somehow to get our thinking mind to stop. We don't actually think that thought, but often that's kind of what's underlying. I want the thinking mind to stop. Now, there's an operation you can have which will do it, but I'm not recommending it, and we're not here for a spiritual lobotomy. But what that says is, oh, there's something really uncomfortable about inhabiting the experience of the thinking mind. And that's because we mostly haven't been trained, we haven't been learned, we haven't been shown how to hold, how to handle the mind until we encounter teachings such as the teachings of the Buddha and, and other wise traditions also. One of the um, one of the uh, ways we sometimes respond to the mind's activity is by trying to shut it down, sort of squeezing on it, tightening. Like, <clears throat> I don't want it to wander off. I don't want to stay present. I want to stay focused. It's sort of an effort and a tightening, and it's not usually so helpful. There's a saying in India that asks the question, how do you fence in a rogue bull elephant? Now, a rogue bull elephant is a powerful creature and it can trample any fence you can build. So how do you fence in a rogue bull elephant? And the answer is, put it in a really large field. If the field is large enough, it has no need to go beyond the boundary. And sometimes with our own minds, that sense of giving it some space, giving it some room to move, but gathering it back in, rather than trying to hold it in, letting it do what it does, and then bringing it back. A bit like training a puppy. If we've ever had to train a puppy, well, no, a, a small creature such as this, they need to learn certain things to live in a human world, to be safe, to be well. And if we know something about training a puppy, the way to do it is you tell it, you know, heal, follow me. If you tell a puppy to follow you, what does it do? It doesn't follow you, it runs away. Oh, so you go and find it and you bring it back. Say, oh, follow me, heal. If every time it runs away, you go, bad dog, bad dog, I told you to heal, don't you understand? Pretty soon the dog, the puppy thinks, that guy's angry, I'm out of here at the first opportunity, and runs away. If you go, oh, look, huh, oh, oh, you've gone to water that tree, how nice, oh, oh you're sniffing a flower, how lovely, hmm, you've done that, come over here. But in each moment it's like, oh, look, come over here, come back and be with me, come back. And the puppy starts to think, oh, 
huh, this, this person's quite nice, maybe I'll hang out with them. That's how training works, that's going to be effective. And that's what we need to do here. Rather than, and it's so common, oh no, I've blown it again, I've lost it. It's more like, how did you notice that you lost it? You only notice that you're unconscious in the moment when you've become conscious again. Until then, you were unconscious by definition. You didn't know you weren't there. And it's actually not that much of a problem generally. It's in the moment we notice, we then often go into a reaction to it. But we could say, hey, wow, look, you're back. How wonderful. I was unconscious for a day or a minute or about six years. But I'm back now. And here I can begin again. That's what's essential. That's what's important. In the And sometimes it's mysterious, isn't it? It's like the light comes back on. But we didn't put it on because we weren't there. So how did it do that? That's the power of the intention. To be awake. It doesn't stop us becoming unconscious, but somehow it bears fruit nonetheless in that reawakening and recognizing what's happening. So notice also, as we do this, this process of how our mind moves and how we come back and begin again and honour the moments of presence, of connection. Don't try and add them up and see if to how many there was and if it was more than last time. That doesn't really matter. See what's possible. Don't worry about if there's more than the other person. We don't know what they're doing. They might look like they're meditating, but they might just be really sitting upright while having a great fantasy. I've certainly done it before. So we just don't know. And yet so easily we start to generate a story about it all, don't we? Have you noticed that? Sometimes the mind is dull, the body is aching, the thoughts are scratchy, and the meditator opens their eyes and looks around. And it's like everybody else is sitting upright, looking so peaceful and calm. And they look and they think, ah, oh, I've had this reported so many times. Ah, oh, it's like here we are, 30 almost fully awakened Buddhas and one overcooked vegetable. And of course, in the next moment, someone else looks around and that person's given up and they're just sitting there not moving. And I think, wow, they're really still. Or we have a moment of awareness. It's like, wow, I'm really present. It does happen, doesn't it? Have you, have you, you've probably had one or two. You know, where you're actually here. Oh, oh, that's my breath. Oh, I wonder what they've been talking about. Yeah, I can, I can get that. Or my body, at least. I can sense there's a body here. I think, wow, oh, this is mindfulness. This is being present. Well, this is good. Yeah, hmm, it works. They were right. Yeah, hmm, I like it. I think I'll do some more. Hmm, maybe I'll do a long retreat, you know, three weeks or maybe three months. That's the traditional one. And before we know it, in a moment, it's like, oh, yes, we have this image of, you know, having ordained and we've shaved our head and taken the robe and we're sitting in a cave and our disciples are bringing bowls of rice and there's a glow coming out of the cave. And it's like, the master, we'll see you now. And then we realize, oh my gosh, 
I've just created a massive fantasy based on a few moments of actually being present, which actually felt quite good. And then, uh uh-huh, I'm hopeless, I can't do it. And see how we project a few moments' experience into a whole story about ourselves. I am or I am not, I can or I cannot, I will or I will not. Just a few moments' experience. And we can notice all of this going on and begin to settle back without judging it, without having to make it somehow look good. To see what we learn from this process, what we learn here. It's not easy, as I said, to do what we're doing. But it's possible, because we're doing it. Here we are. And it does require an effort, but not the effort to make the experience be a certain way or make ourselves be a certain way. The effort that's asked of us here is the effort to actually be awake. And it's a small effort, but it's always, or almost always, certainly in the beginning, almost always, more difficult to be awake than to not be awake. It's just easy to be asleep, isn't it? Just to not bother to have to pay attention, not bother to have to be conscious. On a moment-to-moment level, that somehow seems true. But actually, in our life, it's way more difficult to not be awake than how our life is if we can be conscious in it. It's like on the moment-to-moment level, we make that small effort to just see if I can open, connect, be awake here. This quality of presence, of mindfulness, of consciousness, of sensitivity, of openness, of interest and curiosity, all of these qualities come into what is asked of us in order to be present and attentive without an agenda, without a demand, but also without becoming disinterested. And we start to see that in paying attention, the way things happen starts to make more sense. We start to understand a little. This quality of presence itself has a kind of a healing and soothing element to it. Some of you have noticed, there's just something about it that feels okay. And of course we can get attached to it, but we can also just appreciate it. And we see how painful it is to be caught up in reactivity. How disconnected we get when we're trying to make things be a certain way rather than turning to and opening to how they are. Which doesn't mean, of course, again, that we don't see what's possible here. It's not that we just become passive in the face of experience. There's always the sense of what's possible here. But that sense of what's possible has an openness to it. Because maybe not much is possible, but maybe quite a lot is. Rather than I must, or it should, or I should somehow do something. And as we watch and we see, it starts to become more possible to, to make choices that harmonize our way of being with 
the way life is expressing itself. As we see our experiences, we see they keep changing. Doesn't, the breath doesn't stay the same, the body doesn't stay the same, the weather doesn't stay the same, the mind doesn't stay the same. And in the light of that, we recognize maybe it doesn't make so much sense to hold on to things that will change or to push away things that will change because they change. We start to see that the peace that maybe we long for, the openness, the sensitivity that we yearn for, they come not as something we produce but as what's there as we begin to release the habits of heart and mind that come out of being gripped by, unconsciously lost in the fear of and the craving for, the pushing away and the grabbing hold of. And then we find we can navigate the experiences. Those that we can influence, we can influence. Those that we can't, we can handle. We can care for our life and the life of others and our world more skillfully from that place of wakefulness that we cultivate here. And this journey is one of awakening our heart's capacity for that wisdom which understands the ways of being that truly serve. And the compassion that is moved to help and to heal in the face of suffering and struggle and strife. And we find ourselves also beginning to become more sensitive to, more able to be touched by the beauty around us and the sense of possibility that is everywhere, even amidst the many things that are not in our control. And someone spoke today in the small group of just feeling drawn to, to connect with a, a bush in the grounds, and just something in that. Let some of things draw us, connect us, touch us just to allow yourself to be touched in those moments. I found standing together in a circle today something beautiful, the circle of human beings and trees together. And in this journey, in the walking and the sitting and the standing and the being here in this way, on the earth and under the sky, beneath the stars, and amidst all the myriad forms of life of which we are part, we can come to know the, the openness of heart, the clarity of mind, and the, the peacefulness of being that we are deeply interested in. And so, 
This is what our practice is concerned with. This is what matters, it seems to me. We sit for just a few minutes together, a few moments in fact. So may we all in our practice come to rest in the flow of our lives. To be more fully open, awake and sensitive to receiving what is offered to us here in each moment and with every experience for our own welfare for the welfare of all beings and for the well-being of all that lives Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.